and then Tony's going to come up here and lead us into our scripture reading. This morning we are reading from the Gospels. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to stand together. So as you're able, I want to encourage you to stand. The reason we do this is to remind ourselves that these are not just words on a page. The word is alive and active. The word reads us. We don't just read it. Jesus is the word that God has to say. Jesus is the logos, the word, and the word is here in our midst. And so we stand as a way of saying with our bodies what we want to say with our hearts, which is, God, I'm attentive to you, and I'm open, and I'm here, and I'm present. And so let's hear the word of the Lord from Mark. This is a reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus, James, and John went home with Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed, sick with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. He went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she served them. That evening at sunset, people brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons. But he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. He replied, let's head in the other direction to the nearby villages so that I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Tony. All right. So this is our final Sunday in the season after the Epiphany together. It's not the final Sunday in the season after the Epiphany. Next week is, but we won't be here. We'll be in house churches. And so the next time we're here, we will have already entered into the season of Lent together. And uh, maybe you're really deeply familiar with the church calendar. Maybe that's new to you. Uh, I did not grow up in a tradition that prioritized the church calendar, but it has become a really meaningful way for me to make sense of the Christian life. Um, Through these seasons, we are told the story over and over and over, and through these seasons, we find and make sense of the seasons of our own lives. And so, you know, our seasons of life don't always match up with the seasons of the calendar. Sometimes we are in Advent, but like we're in Lent or we're in Easter, um, and that's fine. The, the more we do this repetition work together, the more we start to make sense of what is God up to in this season of my life. And so uh, that's why the calendar is important. It helps shape us. And so next time we're here, we will have all moved into the season of Lent. And, uh, and so what I want to do is today start to sit in the intersection of those two seasons. Um, we have, and we'll do that next week also in house churches. Uh, we have in Epiphany this reminder of the shining star that leads the wise men to Christ who comes to us at Christmas. We have in Epiphany the baptismal waters through which Jesus hears the word, you are my beloved child, and then Jesus welcomes us to realize that is our identity as well. We are beloved children of God. And so there's bright shining lights, God with us, Emmanuel, you are loved in Epiphany, and then there is, and the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted in Lent. And there are howling animals and you know angels and like it's it's the wilderness is 
desolate and wild, disorienting. And so how do we hold those two seasons together? How do we hold on to our belovedness in a world of wilderness? How do we walk in Christ's way through a desert that does not appear to have very many wells or very many paths out of it? That's the place we find ourselves. And so what I want to do today is summarize and synthesize the things we've talked about through Epiphany, hoping that they may begin to orient us toward how we walk into Lent. And so the last time I spoke, we looked at Jonah. And uh, Jonah, I love the story of Jonah. It's a fascinating story. And if you recall, we explored how Jesus, or Jonah is swallowed up by the fish and how the swallowing up itself turns out to be Jonah's salvation. The confounding, bewildering, unwelcome belly of the whale was how God rescued and reoriented Jonah. And Jonah, who sets out for Tarshish, the city of bright lights and great sights and good food and excitement, he sets out that way, but God uses the whale to redirect him to Nineveh, this way that Jonah would have not gone on his own accord, in fact, the place he did not prefer to go. And so we see already this idea that we set off in our lives in one direction and God reorients us in another direction. And then rewinding further, we remember how John Ott started us into the season of Epiphany by considering Jesus' entry into the world. How God's own son was born into a small stable on the side of a small village. And this is, as John helped us see, a PR disaster right? You do not have the birth of God into the world happen in a dirty manger in a small off-the-beaten-path town that no one sees, like the staff meeting in which Heaven's comms team and the social media folks and the strategic planning group came together, like there was not enough coffee. This plan makes no sense, right? And, uh, and it's a baffling birth announcement, oh, let's not announce God's arrival to the large cities of the world. Let's choose that little sleepy group of shepherds over there. And so we see, like, this is confounding. If this is an epiphany, what kind of epiphany is it? It is the epiphany of a Christ who defies our expectations and has other plans and ways of being in the world than we would assume, right? And then what about those magi? They come to worship the king, and they go on this journey to arrive at the king, and they find themselves in front of a king, but it's not King Jesus, it is King Herod. Because that's who you go to bring your gifts to in that time, and that's who you go to worship in that time. He is the king of the world in that moment, right? But the star doesn't stop there. They are surprised to find the star keeps moving from Herod's place. And God, it turns out, has not chosen the halls of power or profit or politics. God has not chosen the halls of power or profit or politics to reveal himself. Instead, he scorns the high places and he chooses to enter into our world through the lowly places. He comes into our reality through the unlikeliest of doors. And I think if it was God's way then, it's probably God's way now to come in those sorts of ways. Alan Bozak says that like the Magi, our journey also must pass through the halls of Herod first. We have to come to the high place 
to the place where we believe that if we just get a little bit more notoriety or affirmation or money or comfort or power, that will make things all right, only to find it does not consummate us. And only then can we walk through that, beyond that, and find ourselves finally brought to the door of the newborn king, the king of a newborn way, and realize that God's up to something else in the world. I mean, have you ever wondered why the magi seem to be the only ones who see the star? Like, we're talking about a brilliant, blazing out of the sky star, and nobody can see it? Like, Herod, you don't need the magi. Like, man, look up, right? It's right there in front of you no one sees it which is to say that like the way that the magi are able to see it is not because they knew so much about astronomy or astrology it's because their hearts had been awakened into something else going on and so the magi come and they find that god is not where we expect god to be found and he's in this dark and dingy place. He's in this messy and malformed place. He comes through the disguise of our lives, and he still does. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the epiphany story ends with these words from Matthew chapter two, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That phrase, by another way, is for me the phrase of epiphany season. It is the reminder as we prepare for Lent and eventually for Holy Week and eventually for death and resurrection that Jesus is right from the start inviting us to a whole different sort of thing here. And once you see God's upside down way of entering the world, you cannot walk back by the way in which you came. And you cannot return to report back to the kings that you used to call kings. They don't hold that allegiance in your life anymore. And you've seen the bright light, the Christ of another way. The Christ of another way. Jesus eclipses Herod's way and functions like this great light in an otherwise dark sky. It's the same sort of thing that happens in next week's text. We won't look at it since we'll be in house church. But next week's the week of the transfiguration, right? And it's where God uses this other, another brilliant, bright, blazing light that pierces the disciples who have just walked up a mountain and says to them that you gotta walk down the mountain to follow Jesus too. They hear this voice that says, this is my son, listen to him. Which means they're gonna have to learn to unlisten to some other things that they were taught to listen to before, right? And this is how we follow Jesus, not just walking up the paths that feel like we're going higher and higher into the world, but walking downward and listening to the Christ of another way. And then we come to today's passage, and Jesus, the baby, has grown up now, and he's begun his ministry, and he's begun it with a boom. I mean, he's healing people, he's dispensing of diseases, he's driving out demons, he's teaching about the God who heals and saves, and by the way, in the Greek, there's very little difference between the God who heals and the God who saves. That is what it means to be saved, is to be deeply healed. And for the first time, we meet in the book of Mark this key character in the Gospels. And the character is called the crowds. The crowds. The crowds have begun to notice Jesus. He's drawing a crowd. He's making a name for himself. He's starting to arrest the attention of this city. And the disciples soon remind him, everybody is looking for you, Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. And shouldn't this then be the moment that Jesus finally platforms himself? Right? Like, okay, 
He was patient at his incarnation, at his birth, but like now's the moment that Jesus unleashes the world tour, surely, right? That he leans into the spotlight, that he advances his ministry. This is good work to be done. He's driving out demons, he's healing people, he's teaching, everybody's looking for it. I mean, is this not what we want out of all of our ministries, all of our efforts, all of our, like, finally the world's paying attention, let me tell you how to be saved. And what does Jesus do? Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Right? And so Jesus, when everybody's looking for him, embraces solitude. And he resists doing more talking and he spends time listening instead. And this is not only the reminder that like, Jesus prioritizes prayer, it is that. Uh, but this is not just a picture of a quiet time. Mark uses some really loaded words here. That word dark is the same word that he uses when Jesus is brought to the cross and the same word he uses after Jesus dies. And he's driven to a desolate place, which is the same word that comes up when Jesus is sent into the wilderness to be tempted, right? There's a picture of Lent again. And so what we have here is Jesus struggling to choose uh, maybe struggle is not the right word, but like he has to make this choice of intentionality that involves a bit of a wrestling match in the wilderness world he leaves. This is, this is not just a nice, like, precious moments, quiet time. Like, there is a, some wrestling here for Jesus to say, I intentionally choose to prioritize the Father's voice in a noisy world. And so Jesus goes and he prays. He discerns what his Father has to say. And eventually the, the disciples and Peter find him, right? They track him down. They say, everybody's looking for you. They are both exasperated and mystified by Jesus' priorities here. I love how Gary Charles puts it. He says, Mark, which was most likely written at Peter's direction, has Peter correcting Jesus several times. The disciples have come to restore Jesus to his senses. They know what Jesus should be doing, and it is not sitting in solitude and prayer. Anxious crowds await his immediate action. They find Jesus as if he is lost and has forgotten his task. Jesus points out that he is not lost and that his task is not simply to respond to the incessant cries of a crowd. And so with the whole town finally looking for him, the Christ of another way says this in response, let's head in the other direction. <laughs> I mean, do you see this? It comes up over and over. Come this way, Jesus. Nah, I have other villages I've got to go reach now. He confounds the expectations. The Christ of another way, the Christ of the descent and not just the ascent, the Christ of the outsider, not just the insider, the Christ of the weak, not just the strong, the Christ of the dark night, the Christ of the blazing light, the Christ who goes by another way. What does it mean to follow this Christ? How can we be formed to live in the world like this confounding Jesus was. How do we do that when Lent's temptations are all around us? When the Herods of the world are crying out for our allegiance and our attention? How do we do it when there is fluorescent light all around us so that it's hard to see the blazing star in the sky? It requires that same sort of intentionality and so I wanna just sit for a few minutes with us reflecting on our own lives. How do we follow the Christ of another way? Um, for one, journaling, uh, our spiritual practice for the month, 
may be a helpful medium, right? What would it look like to slow my life down enough to notice the noise and to listen for what my father has to say? Um, in journaling and in prayer and in silence, we follow the other way example of Jesus who wakes up early to get alone even though good people want good things from him. And even though the disciples have their own ministry goals, and even though this would seem like a success, Jesus pulls away from it. He doesn't react. He discerns. And he doesn't reflexively conform to the pressures and expectations all around him. He gets clear on what his father has to say. And so what about us? How will we walk roads that put us in a position to meet the Christ of another way? Is there a place where you have felt the gentle, persistent whisper of the Spirit pointing you in some deeper direction this year? Is there an obedience you've been putting off? Is there a confounding and counterintuitive invitation you sense God has for you? Is there a place or a path to walk that resists the expectations of culture or of others or perhaps even your own expectations but you sense you're being invited on it? Is there a parting of company with the agreements you have held about how you must be and how things must get done? Does God want to give you a new job description for living? And I want to say, like, I'm not intending to advocate recklessness, right? Like, some things are the way that most people do them because there's wisdom in them, right? Some things have become, uh, like, best practices for good reasons, right? So let's not be reckless. Also, let's not just be contrarian to be contrarian. That's not the way of Jesus. Rather, what I'm saying is, what would it look like for discernment to be our core practice, the first order work of my life is to say alongside Jesus, I only do what I see the Father doing. I mean, I am miles from that reality. Miles from it. To get a little closer this year to I only do what I see my Father doing. And so we start asking questions like, is the right thing really to take that promotion? Is the right thing really to put more money in savings? Is it really to sell the house or to buy the house? Is the, real, is the right thing really to vote that way I've always voted? Or to climb that ladder or to grow that church? Maybe, maybe not. How will we know? We listen and we are led and we test what we sense in the presence of others in our community. And often we are surprised by the way God is at work in our lives. And so is it possible that Jesus' surprising path to wholeness means becoming more aware of your dividedness, actually? And is it possible that the freedom you're desperate for comes through constraint? Is it possible that worship is less about giving God our gifts and more about giving God our trust? And so following Jesus, as we do this, we should not be surprised to find ourselves asking different questions than we used to ask and prioritizing different things than we used to prioritize and, and revaluing things that we maybe didn't value before, acting from deeper places than we used to act, 
all of these things are caught up in what it means to follow the Christ of another way. I mean, if we find our experience of God to be nothing other than asking God to actualize the life that I already wanted, then are we following the Christ of another way? If we find that we have confined Christ to the passenger seat of our lives while we are driving forward toward the means and the destination we already decided we wanted to end up in, that sounds a little bit more like Jonah, right? And don't be surprised if we get eaten up by a whale that we might be led to where we actually need to go. Perhaps we need to slow down and seek the surprising way of Jesus again. And so, as we close, right out of the gate of a new year, we get the picture of a God who has perplexing priorities and other agendas and a different sense of responsibility than we would have assumed. My plans are not your plans and my ways are not your ways. And so may we, with the wilderness voices wailing all around us, enter Lent as listeners to the Christ who says, come on, I'm going to show you the way to walk. Let's pray. Lord, yeah, I'm reminded of that passage. It says, you'll stand before the crossroads and look and listen for where the ancient path is, and you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Um, We bring to you, God, the stuff of our lives, and we just recognize how we are hardwired toward our personality preferences and the, the stories we have in our head through the pains of our life and our disappointments and our dreams. We have ways we think we have to go, and... I pray that you would both help lead us to that wholeness and also mess up our plans. And help us to see it. Just give us the grace of a sense that though this isn't what we thought, you're up to something. You're actually answering our prayers in a deeper way, possibly. That you are for our good. You're not yanking us around you are helping us live repentantly, turning from our way to meet you on the good way. Help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.